For the Pacifica Radio Network and from the studios of KBOO in Portland, Oregon, this is Progressive Spirit. ProgressiveSpirit.net. I'm John Schuck. And in the relationship between women and domination within marriage, within the church, within society, what we're seeing blasted all over our news um, newsreels today is really the, the rape culture, how we're actually seeing assault be justified by a presidential candidate, and not only that, but also by his proxies as, uh, it's just macho talk. No, it isn't. It's sin. Lisa Sharon Harper is the Chief Church Engagement Officer with Sojourners. Lisa has been leading trainings and helping mobilize clergy and community leaders around shared values for the common good with a focus on racial justice. She's written a new book called The Very Good Gospel, How Everything Wrong Can Be Made Right via Skype from Washington, D.C. Welcome, Lisa Sharon Harper, to Progressive Spirit. John, it's so great to be here. Thank you so much for inviting me. It's an honor. I'm going to ask the hard question first because it just comes right out. Uh, evangelism, evangelist, evangelical. Uh, for some of us, those are scary words. Uh, sure. we, might, we might think of an evangelical <laughs> Christian, think of someone who wants to push their religion and they have all the answers and they want me to vote for Donald Trump. And, and you're none of that. So, so what does mm-hmm. evangel and the other forms of that word mean to you? Well, what evangel means is to tell the good news. I mean, it's just to, it's to share good news with people. So we all do that. We do that every day. Hopefully we have good news that we share with our family. We have good news we share with our friends. For someone who actually identifies as an evangelical, the good news that means the most to them in their lives, that has done the most to actually transform their life here in this life is actually um, is Jesus, is the person of Jesus and, and Jesus' story. And, and not only that, but the whole canon of Scripture, the, the meta story, the larger story of, um, of redemption that, that is possible for all of us. But the problem, really, and the reason I think the reason why most people, when they think of anything having to do with Eve or evangelical or evang, is that they think of it in political terms because the evangelical faith has been so hijacked by uh, one party, by one political ideology, conservatism. And it's, it's ironic because it's really not where it began. Um, the original, the first evangelicals, according to church historian David Bebbington, they were actually like, formed in the crucible of the abolitionist movement. Um, they were formed in a time in England and then over here in America. Um, the reason why their, their good news caught fire is that it had absolute implications for justice here in, in, in this world right now. And it was a, a, a trumpeting, a lifting up of God's desire to bring justice into the world. And actually, some people, I mean, most historians will actually look back at the 19th century and they'll say, you know, it was evangelicals, actually, before the church split, when everybody was really considered evangelical, that that really spearheaded the abolitionist movement and the women's suffrage movement and the labor union movement. And you would never know that today because of how much the faith has been hijacked by political ideology. And it is split, uh, like you say, the history of sort of the social justice Christians uh, on one end and evangelical on the other. And uh, yes, and your work, mm-hmm. of course, at Sojourners in, in, in many ways is to bring those two together. Well, yeah, we actually do find ourselves to be bridge people because we have actually a spectrum of the church represented just on our staff. Um, At the highest level, we have people who are 
Catholic and evangelical and mainline and historic black church. We, we really got everybody up in here. Um, and, and so our whole goal is actually not to promote one stream of the faith or to promote a political ideology, but rather to promote the gospel and to have, to have, uh, the church in particular understand how, what implications does the good news of Jesus Christ have on the way that we engage the world, the ethics of how we interact in the world. Now, your personal faith and experience uh, really comes through in this work. Can you, can you talk a little bit about your own spiritual history? Sure. I mean, this book was actually, uh, it was catalyzed by a pilgrimage that I took 13 years ago. I was on staff with um, with a, a evangelical group, a college ministry, and in order for that college ministry to grow in its understanding of the ethical implications of the gospel, we did this pilgrimage through the history of Native people in America, really specifically through the lens of the Cherokee Trail of Tears, and then Africans in America from slavery through civil rights. Well, my family heritage is that that history. Um, According to oral tradition, people in my family walked the Trail of Tears and escaped in Kentucky. And on that pilgrimage, we literally stopped, I believe, at the campsite, the park where my ancestors most likely escaped from. And then we were down in the Deep South and we were traversing over the same soil where some of the most heinous stuff happened in the course of Jim Crow and, and enslavement, slavery. And I was remembering and re- reminded of my own family's history of being enslaved in South Carolina and Kentucky and Virginia and my mom's engagement in the civil rights movement through SNCC. And, um, you know, so it was all so personal. But I got to the end of that summer of that, that four-week journey, and I was honestly kind of dumbstruck by one question. The question was, what does your gospel, what does my gospel have to say to this, to what I've just experienced, to the most evil stuff that's ever happened on our land. And what I was left with was nothing. I had to admit that my understanding of the gospel, which was very thin, was mute in the face of injustice. And I couldn't take my understanding of the gospel, which is very simple, at at the time was very simple. It was God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life, but you're sinful and therefore separated from God. But Jesus died to pay the penalty for your sin. And so if you just pray this prayer and say that you believe in Jesus, then you'll get to go to heaven. I couldn't take that understanding of the gospel to my own ancestors while they were walking the trail of tears and expect them to jump up and down for joy or to my great, great, great grandmother who was the last adult slave in our family, Leah Ballard and have her jump up and down for joy at that news because she was suffering from having had five husbands either die or be sold away from her or 17 children, some of whom she never got to know because they were sold away or they died early. Would she have jumped up and down? I had to admit the answer was no. So that sent me on a 13-year journey, really going deep in Genesis, in particular Genesis 1 through 14, to understand the biblical concept of shalom. And then asking the question, what does shalom have to do with the gospel? And that's pretty simple. Shalom is what the, God, what the kingdom of God looks like. It is what it smells like. It is what citizenship in the kingdom of God requires. And so 
when we ask the question of what the good news is, Jesus said, repent and believe the good news. The kingdom is near. The kingdom of God is near. Well, what Jesus is saying is, I'm here to bring back shalom. I'm here to restore the dignity of every human being, to restore the wellness of the image of God in all people on earth. And I'm here to restore right relationship between systems and structures that govern us and the people they govern and within families and between people groups and between us and the land. It is a whole, whole full-orbed gospel. It is good news. Lisa Sharon Harper, my guest, author of The Very Good Gospel, How Everything Can Be Made Right Again. You use the word thin, but what you've just described is what you've also said is it's thick, um, that shalom mm-hmm. is connected with uh, not just the individual, uh, but with uh, the whole interrelationship, including uh, creation, earth itself. Yeah, and you know, actually, this is really, this honestly was a really big deal for me in the writing and the research for this book, because I kind of entered the book thinking one way about what sin is, thinking kind of in a very traditional way. Sin, I was taught, you know, in my uh, youth group growing up, when I first decided to follow Jesus, become a Christian, as evangelicals do, we all have like this moment, or most of us have a moment where we said, I'm deciding, I'm ju- what I call is jumping the broom with Jesus, <laughs> kind of, you know, <laughs> saying, yeah, I'm in, right? So I, after that, very soon after that, I was taught that sin is to miss the mark of perfection. But the problem is, is that that definition is actually the definition of sin as the Greeks understood it. But our faith is not a Greek faith. Our faith is actually from the Hebrews. And the Hebrews in Genesis 1, at the very end, um, the priests who were exiting the Babylonian Empire, who actually wrote Genesis 1, um, as they were exiting, and I believe they were writing it to figure out how now, after we've been oppressed for 70 years, how now shall we rule? Well, at the end of Genesis 1, after all of these things have been created, they write that God looked around and said, yo, this is very good right? So that very good is the word me'od, very, and that means forcefully, um, abundantly, overflowing, overwhelmingly, even some people could argue violently good. But that word goodness is not talking necessarily about the thing itself. That's how the Greeks understood goodness, that it's located inside the thing. So that cup is good. That dog is a good dog. That sunshine is good sunshine. But what how the Hebrews understood goodness was that it was something that existed between things. It is the tie that binds us together. That's how goodness functions. It exists in the relationship between things. So how the original Hebrews who read the word or heard that original word, how they would have heard it was God saying, yo, everything I've made together is tied together with violently good relationship to each other. So that God was saying the relationship between humanity and God was forcefully good. The relationship between men and women was forcefully good. Between us and the rest of creation, forcefully good. Between humanity and the systems that govern us, forcefully good. There was no cursing. There was only blessing. And and so, so if that is what forceful goodness, the closest thing the Hebrews had to perfection was, then sin, missing the mark of perfection would actually, to the Hebrews, be anything that breaks any of those relationships that God declared very good. So at the heart of our call is to maintain violently good relationship with each other. 
And when we break that relationship, that's sin. Now, the subtitle of your book is How Everything Can Be Made Right Again. There's a lot wrong in the world. Do you really think everything can be made right again? Well, it's, well, let's, let's, it's, it's how everything wrong can be made right. And here's the okay. thing is that when we think about wrong, we're talking again about the relationships. And I do, I think it's possible. Now, whether or not people are going to do what it takes to get right with each other, to get right with the land, to get right between ethnic groups, to get right between nations, that's another story. We have choice. We have agency. We have been given the capacity to exercise dominion on earth, which is exactly what that means, to exercise agency, to steward the world. Now, how we steward it is our choice. But it is possible for relationships to be restored, for all that is wrong to be made right. It's simple. It is simply what my little youth group leader told me to do way back in the day, to repent to simply turn and walk in another direction. That's all repentance means. It means turn and walk another direction, walk the opposite direction. So in the way that we pollute, in the way that we, um, we, we don't conserve, we have a consumer society, what would quote unquote repentance look like? It would look like conservation of our energy. It would look like solar panels. It would look like making sure that we don't have roofs in cities that are full of black tar that um, attract the heat and create heat islands in cities and, and then trap in toxins to those uh, under-resourced neighborhoods. That's repentance. It would, In the case of uh, our justice system, repentance would look like ending mass incarceration because mass incarceration and the policies that created it have broken relationship between the ethnic communities that are targeted by it, particularly black and brown communities, and the systems that govern us. So it would look like repenting of that, turning and walking another direction. And then the relationship between women and domination within marriage, within the church, within society, what we're seeing blasted all over our news um, newsreels today is really the, the rape culture, how we're actually seeing assault be justified by a presidential candidate, and not only that, but also by his proxies, as uh, it's just macho talk. No, it isn't. It's sin, because it's breaking relationship. And it's also, it's something that helps to crush, oppress the image of God in half the people on earth. So yeah, I think it's possible, but I think it's whether or not we do it is another question. Lisa Sharon Harper, the title of the book, The Very Good Gospel, How Everything Wrong Can Be Made Right. Uh, Jim Wallace, uh, the founder of Sojourners, was on the show a few months ago talking about uh, his book on white privilege. He said the problem is uh, white Christians need to be, act more Christian uh, than white. And, and yes. I, want, I want to lead that conversation to race. You went to Ferguson, Missouri, and you wrote uh, that the question that haunted you was this one. Why weren't there more white people and other non-African-American ethnicities marching with the people of Ferguson? Well, what did you yeah. discover when you were there? Okay, so what I discovered, and actually I didn't just discover this in Ferguson. Actually, I have to say the seed of that, that thought was planted in New York City after Sean Bell was, was shot 51 times mm. on the night before his wedding um, as he was coming out of his bachelor party. He was surrounded by police and shot from multiple angles and died. And the march that took place on Fifth Avenue was led by uh, uh, Reverend Jesse Jackson and, um, uh, and, and other leaders. And it was almost all, the march was
was almost all black, but I was going to a mostly white church at the time, an Asian. And I knew that the people in that church actually wanted an on-ramp on. They just didn't know how to enter in because their leaders were not entering in. Their leaders were not talking about it and were not engaging. And I think that what we do is we underestimate the power of the racialization of our world, of the racial barriers that actually exist. They are unseen, but they are there. So oftentimes we don't engage because we haven't, there's no bridge in. So that's actually why I went to Ferguson, was to help create a bridge, to find those bridge people who already exist, who were already at work in St. Louis, all over St. Louis, and to help them to, to organize um, their people and like-minded people to create a larger bridge for more people to engage. And that worked. Over the course of one week, we had four major trainings. One, two of them were actually, um, no, three of them were actually four um, conservative, multi-ethnic and white evangelical churches in the St. Louis area. And out of those trainings, one which was um, a dialogue time, another was um, a major event that brought together 250 church planters and other faith leaders throughout, um, throughout St. Louis. In the course of that time, people began to interrogate the assumptions that they make about their systems and how those systems serve all or don't. They, they heard testimonies, they heard personal stories and, and witnessed and partook in tears as they took people's stories in. They allowed the stories of others to become their own story and a part of their own story. And that moved them to the street. So now that group is called Faith for Justice. It's been in operation ever since we were there in 2014, August 2014. And they have become an integral part of the, the Ferguson movement um, in partnership with all the young leaders who we know so well because they led. And I think one marker of, of their leadership or their, their work is that they didn't actually come in saying, this is what we need to do. Um, they didn't try to start their own new thing. They followed the lead of the least of these, of those who had been pushed to the margins and those who were being targeted. They exercised humility, and as a result, they built major thick bridges that are still being stood on today. Yeah, um, that was what I also wanted to talk about next. Uh, Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. talked about the beloved community. Um, seems yeah. to be another way of talking about shalom. But King mm -hmm. and you are both clear that uh, the leaders uh, are, are the oppressed, are the least of yes. these. And uh, one of the problems with many uh, white churches is that uh, white people think they always need to lead, don't know anything else to do. Yes. Actually, I have to tell you, there was this one moment um, that actually is talked about in the book, but there was this one moment where um, in our in the very first uh, meeting that I had in St. Louis was with a group of evangelical, like major faith leaders throughout St. Louis. So the heads of major organizations and mega churches. And we were meeting at this um, pub, the Three, Th Three Kings pub um, right across the street from Wash U. And um, we were talking and shared with them the vision of Isaiah 61, which is that it is the oppressed. It is the ones who are weeping. It is the ones who are full of ashes now, who will actually become the ones who restore the devastations of many generations, who will become the repairers of the breach. That's what that's the prophecy of Isaiah 61. And the thing about evangelicals is that, look. If you can't find it in scripture, it doesn't exist to them. So, but if you can find it in scripture, not just find it, but if scripture is 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 strong on a point, then they really do have to listen. 
So we talked about humility. What would it look like for you to enter into the struggle in Ferguson and be led by the people in Ferguson? And one of those leaders stood up after a time of, of deep introspection, and he confessed. He said, as a white man, I have been taught that it's my role in this world to lead everyone else. And another young man who is an Asian man said, it never even occurred to me that I would need to follow the people in Ferguson. So that was a real about face. That, that day was a real marker in the sand for that movement. And it's really characterized the work that they've done. And it's, it's really been a beautiful witness in the city of St. Louis as a result. Now, your book is in part uh, a Bible study, uh, but it's a study that's informed by the tools of modern historical scholarship. Uh, tell me a little bit more about the Bible for you. Uh, what is it and what isn't it, and, and how do you use it? Oh, that's a great question. Well, I mean, first of all, it's not a science document, so science didn't even exist back then, so we got to X that off. It's not trying to do science. So whenever I say, okay, I start in Genesis 1, people go, oh, no. She's going to try to convince <laughs> us that the world was made in seven days, right? No, that's not the point. And actually, what I really do believe is that this is this is an ancient text that was written by many authors that actually shares one large story that takes place over literally over thousands of years. And it has implications for our world today. And I do believe that it's actually communicating real truth about our relationship with God and our relationship with each other and the earth. And we can learn from it. And not only that, but our lives can be transformed by it. That's what I really believe about the scripture, that it is, it is powerful. It is power. But it is not trying to be a science text or even a history text in the way that we think of history today. Because the way we think of history today is actually a modern understanding of history. It, it's all concerned with what happened when and facts and those kinds of things. But that's not how the ancients thought about story, thought about even history. They were trying to, they were most concerned with truth, not necessarily fact, you know, like this happened. And mm -hmm. so now we need to prove that this happened. They were trying to communicate truth to their people. So I do believe that the text is true. I am, I am clear about that, but I am not trying to prove that the earth was created in seven days because <laughs> I don't think that that's the kind of text it is. I am a writer. I actually believe that texts are written in order to be understood and they're written in different forms and formats. And in order to understand a text, you have to understand what format it's being written in. Is it a song? Is it a poem? Is it a story? Is it historical text? Is it prose? Um, is it academic? All of these things require a different read, right? A different lens. And Genesis 1 was actually written in the form of an epic Hebrew poem. And it's, it's, it's very clearly an epic Hebrew poem. And as a result, if we try to limit or like just take it literally as in, you know, on day one, this is what happened. And day two, we're going to miss the point. And I, I've come to understand that I think the point is really about who God is in relationship to all of us and who we are in relationship to each other and how God has created us in a way that was created with full dignity, with the kind of dignity that used to be reserved, even in the time of the writers, only for the kings and queens. But these writers, when they wrote their creation story, they turned the old creation stories on their heads when they said, and let us make all humankind 
in our image. In other words, let all humanity have the inherent dignity of royalty. And then in the next breath, and let them have dominion, which was a complete democratization of power. Because up to that point, most of their surrounding societies, including Babylon and others, they actually believed that human beings were made to be slaves to the gods. So the declaration by the priests who wrote Genesis 1, that all humanity is made in the image of God and created to exercise dominion, is a thumb to the nose of the worldview of the surrounding communities and an assertion of every human being's right to exercise stewardship of the world. That is huge. And that alone has huge implications for people of faith who claim faith um, in Jesus, who said, you know, he's he's. Is a continuation of this this long story that starts in Genesis for us. Lisa Sharon Harper is the author of The Very Good Gospel, How Everything Wrong Can Be Made Right. We just have about a minute left, but I want to ask this question. We're now at the end of a contentious, ugly, and icky election season. I yeah. feel the need to take a long, hot shower for about a month. Mm. Uh, <laughs> what is shalom for our nation? Oh, very good. At the heart of shalom is the care the cultivation, the protection, and the serving of the image of God in all. And that means every, within every family, every person, within every community, every um, people group, including different um, social status, class status, ethnic identity, and between nations as well. So when we protect cultivate, serve the image of God in the people in the nation next door, we actually will also be serving ourselves. It's when we only govern within our families, within our communities, within this world for our own interests, that's when shalom is broken. So when we think about this election, we really need to be asking the question, if we want to move towards shalom, we need to be asking the question, who has the platform that has the greatest possibility of cultivating the image of God in those in the other, in the other across the tracks from me, in the other, um, in the other ethnic group, in the other gender, in the other nation across the border from us? Who has that platform? Who has those policies? Who has the best plan to make it happen? That's who I'm voting for. Lisa Sharon Harper, author of The Very Good Gospel, How Everything Wrong Can Be Made Right, a very good book. Uh, Lisa, thank you so much uh, for this book and for being with me today. I really appreciate it. Thanks so much for having me. You've been listening to Progressive Spirit, Spirituality and Social Justice. For more about the show and to find podcasts of all the programs, go to ProgressiveSpirit.net. Progressive Spirit and my other program, Beloved Community, are distributed through the Pacifica Radio Network. I'm John Shuck. Be well.